the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, as I said, there were vital roles that salt played in their lives. Variety of important functions in the world of Christ's day. And what we need to do if we're to understand what Jesus meant is to really to figure out which important function of salt did he have in mind when he called his disciples the salt of the earth. See, if you can figure out the particular role of salt that Jesus was referring to, then we will certainly understand the role that he intends for us in the world. You are the salt of the earth. That can be taken a lot of ways. And it is taken a lot of ways. But how we take it is supremely important. As with all scripture, God has something to tell us. And once we understand something of the culture and thought patterns of the original hearers and readers, we can put aside the conjecture and absorb the meaning of the message. Hello and welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today we begin a new series of lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. It's titled, Righteousness in the Kingdom. We'll begin the study of Matthew's account just after the Beatitudes, as Jesus in Matthew 5.13 pays us a wonderful compliment. But since our setting is so different from that in first century Israel, Pastor Steve will help us understand Jesus' words the way his original audience would have understood them. Grab your Bible if you can. Here's Pastor Steve with today's lesson. Let's open our Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Though we have actually finished with the Beatitudes, we are still in the Sermon on the Mount, and there are some wonderful, wonderful teachings that uh, we have in store for us as we work our way through these three chapters. I want to read to you, beginning at verse 13, all the way to verse 16. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. With these words, Jesus paid one of the greatest compliments to any of his followers at any time. He called them both the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which as we'll see in our study this morning and next week, they're references to the positive impact and influence that we can have in our world, salt and light. And in telling them this, I want you to understand that Jesus was actually singling them out as the only ones on the planet who could fit this description. He wasn't saying just in in Israel, you're the salt of the earth, but I've got other people all around, and only in Israel, you're the light of the world. What he was saying was that you're the only ones in the whole wide world who can legitimately be called salt and light. In other words, what he's saying is you and you alone are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, folks, I don't know if you realize that, but that's an amazing statement. These are amazing accolades to give 
to this uh, group of people because the vast majority of those sitting in, in the audience listening to Jesus that day understand that they were common, ordinary people. They were certainly not the movers and shakers in Jewish society. They certainly did not have uh, political clout. The crowd that day didn't consist of military or religious or political leaders, not at all. There were no high-powered businessmen in the audience. For the most part, the crowd that day were just uh, poor Galilean farmers and some poor Galilean fishermen, people with no formal education. In fact, these people were just poor, very poor. They were so poor in chapter 6, verse 25, Jesus has to tell them, don't worry about, about having enough food today or having enough clothing or your life in just sustaining you and, and water. Notice, he said, let me read to you Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink or for your body as to what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. He's telling them, don't, don't worry about, about living another day. These were poor people. They wondered about sustaining their lives by enough food and, and water. So the people that Jesus called salt and light were just ordinary, common, low-income citizens they were considered by the ruling religious class of people to be just insignificant peasants of the land. That's all. Just nobodies. In fact, they were so run-of-the-mill that someone has referred to them as ordinarily ordinary. Ordinarily ordinary. That's, that's a great expression. Keep in mind that most of these, uh, though they were farmers, the, those closest to Christ, his closest disciples who later would become his apostles, were just common Galilean fishermen, men who carried really no weight, no authority in the world of their day. And yet to this seemingly insignificant group of peasants, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, you're the, you're the light of the world. Now, I want to point out something that's very important. Those words were not said just randomly. Those words were not just thrown out as a compliment because Jesus was in the mood to, to hand out compliments that day. Jesus didn't just call them salt and light out of the blue. There was a context to his words. And there was a design. There was a strategy. There was a purpose. This was a sermon. Well, if you've ever put a sermon together, you understand that there's flow and there's transition and there's structure. It's not random thoughts just thrown together and then let's see what happens. Jesus had a strategy here. He purposely called them salt and light immediately after he gave them the Beatitudes. Why? Because the statements about being salt and light were, watch this, the logical follow-up to all that Jesus has just said in the Beatitudes. Now, let me put this together for you. The Beatitudes, we know, reveal the character of true disciples, of citizens of his kingdom. That's who we are. Because of being transformed by his power and grace and salvation, there's a certain inner character that we have, a certain quality that ought to come out in, in our lives. Now, that's what the Beatitudes are about. Those are statements, no commands, except a little bit about rejoicing if you're persecuted. But essentially, the Beatitudes just tell us what we are. But now Jesus tells us that in, in light of the fact of who you are, here's how you function. You are salt and you are light in the world. In other words, what he's doing in, in identifying citizens of his kingdom as salt and light, Jesus is revealing two roles that those citizens have in the world. This is our relationship with the world. You see, it, it, it would be normal for us to ask, especially when, when 
The Beatitudes close by telling us that we're going to be persecuted. We're going to be slandered. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to be hated for Christ. You might wonder, well, should we have any relationship with the world? Shouldn't we just kind of hide? Shouldn't we retreat? Shouldn't we isolate ourselves? And the statements about salt and light make it very clear that no, we do have a relationship with the world. We do have a function in the world. We do have roles with people of the world. People who are not citizens of the kingdom. And those two roles are we are to be salt to them and we are to be light to them. In other words, we are to demonstrate beatitude-like character as we live and move amongst hostile, fallen, sin-hardened unbelievers. Rather than withdrawing from those who might insult and persecute and slander us, Jesus taught just the opposite. We're to serve them. We're actually to be involved in exerting a positive influence on our society. How? By living out the truths of the Beatitudes. There are no commands in here about being salt and light. You just are. You just are. He's not telling us to get involved politically. He's not telling us to, to use our collective clout to get officers uh, 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 elected. He's not telling us at all to do anything. Just be what I told you you are. And so to communicate our relationship to unbelievers, Jesus actually used two pictures drawn from the everyday world of his day, salt and light. And this morning, we're going to see the first of these roles, the first, the first uh, relationship we have with the world, and that's to be salt. We're to be salt to them. Next week, we'll look at light. But in order to grasp our role as salt, we've, we need to ask two basic questions that will help us to understand Christ's words here. Question number one, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth. What did Jesus mean by that? Secondly, what is the danger of salt becoming tasteless? He talks about if the salt has lost its, its tastefulness, what, what do you do then? There is a danger. There's a very, very clearly, it goes down to the Sea of Galilee. It's, a, it's an incline. It's not, a, it's not a mountain as much. It's really a hill. But as he looked over the vast majority of people who are his disciples, and he looked over the crowd, he referred to them as the salt of the earth. He said, you are the salt of the earth. Now, it's obvious that in, in some way, Jesus was saying that believers function as salt, right? I mean, that's obvious that we function like salt. But, but the question is, in what way? And this isn't that easy to figure out. This isn't uh, as simple to figure out because uh, salt in that day, had a lot of different functions. There were various functions to salt. We have to understand something of the background of salt. See, salt was extremely valuable in Christ's day. It was highly regarded because of the many significant ways that it could be used to, to enhance and, and benefit life. The Greeks, in fact, treasured salt to the point that for a brief time in their history, they actually considered salt almost divine. That's how much they treasured it. The Romans thought so highly of salt that they considered it more valuable, they said, than anything other than the sun. The sun was first, salt was second. In times during Roman history, we know that they actually paid Roman soldiers with salt. That's how significant it was. And if a soldier wasn't diligent in carrying out his responsibilities, it was said of him that he wasn't worth his salt. It's interesting to note that our English word salary comes from a Latin word, salarium, which was a reference to the salt allotment issued to Roman soldiers. And you know what? Even in our day and age, the, this, the, the use of salt 
as a positive virtue comes into our, um, our own language because we also often associate a person's value with salt. When we praise someone, we say, you're the salt of the earth. That's where this comes from, that salt was very valuable. So the ancient world held salt in, in very high regard. But why? Well, as I said, there were vital roles that salt played in their lives. Variety of important functions in the world of Christ's day. And what we need to do if we're to understand what Jesus meant is to really to figure out which important function of salt did he have in mind when he called his disciples the salt of the earth. See, if you can figure out the particular role of salt that Jesus was referring to, then we will certainly understand the role that he intends for us in the world. So we have to do a little thinking here. And I'm going to mention to you a number of ways that salt was was used in order to determine, as we do a process of elimination, what was Jesus thinking when he spoke of salt? Well, first of all, one very common use that salt had was it was used as a food seasoning, uh, just as we do today. If your food is a little drab, if your food is a little tasteless, you, you add flavor to it by salting it. That's the way they did it in the ancient world as well. And the Bible even refers to this function of salt in Job 6, verse 6, when it says, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? So the Bible recognizes that, that salt was used to flavor tasteless or or drab food. Question is, was this the usage of salt that Jesus had in mind when he he called his followers the salt of the earth? Well, some seem to think so. Some seem to think so, and therefore they would interpret Christ's words to mean that that the presence of his disciples in the world adds a little zest to life, adds a little flavor, a little little joy to life. In other words, um, we spice up life by our joy. We make life palatable by adding some divine flavor to an otherwise drab and boring world. Now, at first, this, this view is very plausible. It makes it makes sense at first, but I doubt if this is the function of salt that Jesus had in mind, and I'll tell you why. Salt may have been used to spice up drab food, but the world doesn't find anything spicy in us at all. We're not spicy to them. In 2 Corinthians 2.16, you can mark this down, you don't need to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians 2.16, the Apostle Paul said that the world looks at us as an aroma of death. An aroma of death. We bring the gospel to them and they reject it. We're an aroma of death. In other words, we are a stench of death to them. We stink like rotten death, like a corpse. We reek like a dead corpse to them. So far from, from adding zest to life. In the eyes of the world, and you know this, in the eyes of the world, we're pretty dull. We don't add any, we don't make life more palatable. We take the excitement out of life from their perspective. We're uh, we're as boring as you can get. They want to live it up, and and we just want to take it all away from them. So salt may have added some taste to a bland diet, but that doesn't seem to be what Jesus had in mind in calling us the salt of the earth. The world does not consider us zesty people at all. We're a stench of death to them. We're pretty boring creatures. Another secondary way that salt was used in the ancient world was to create thirst, to create thirst by increasing the body's desire for water. 
Even today, those who work outdoors in the sun and the, in the heat sometimes will take a salt tablet in order to create thirst so they'll be forced to drink a lot of water and, and not get dehydrated. So we understand that. And in light of the fact that physical salt creates a thirst for water, some people believe that Jesus was teaching that we, by our beatitude-like lives, create a thirst among unbelievers for God. In other words, as, as unbelievers see our personal uh, peace to handle adversity, our composure in the midst of difficult situations, as they, as they see us handle life, when they might fall apart, they'll, they'll begin to have a thirst for that. I, I want that. I'm, I'm jealous of that. And you know what? There's certainly truth to that. There's certainly truth to that. As the Lord, the Lord certainly can use our testimony to create that, that um, within people to desire what we have. We know that Paul was talking about that in Romans 11 when he spoke to Gentile Christians and he said that your lives should be so attractive that Jewish people should be provoked to jealousy by your behavior. So we understand that, that, that there is a truth to that, but once again, I doubt that that's what Jesus had in mind by calling us the salts of the earth. And the reason I doubt it is because creating thirst was not the primary way that people thought of salt or, or even used salt in the ancient world. It was just a very secondary, very minor way that salt functions, just, just like it is today. When you think of salt today, you don't think of getting a salt tablet. That's not the first thing that comes to your mind. So it's highly unlikely that Christ's audience would have thought of themselves as thirst creators when they heard Jesus speak of them as salt. The same thing holds true for a number of other secondary uses of salt. For example, salt was used as an antiseptic to clean out infected wounds. And since salt placed on a wound stings, uh, so the thought is that Jesus was teaching that our lives sting the world by pricking their conscience. In other words, by our righteous behavior, there is conviction of sin. Now, certainly, once again, there's truth to that. But also, once again, this is a very secondary use for salt. Still another secondary use of salt was as a fertilizer when applied, not to soil in general, would kill soil in general, but salt was used sometimes as a fertilizer only upon certain types of soil and in very small quantities. But once again, once again, very secondary. But those who believe that Jesus was talking about this would say that, that we're like salt fertilizers in the sense that as disciples, we enhance the growth of God's work on, on earth. Well, there's a, once again, a truth to that. But is it the truth that Jesus meant in this passage? I don't think so. Because once again, cleaning out wounds, fertilizing the earth were not primary uses of salt among the ancient people. And therefore, it's highly unlikely that it would have ever occurred to our Lord's audience to identify themselves with these functions of salt. So question is, if Jesus, if Jesus didn't use salt to speak of adding flavor to life or creating thirst or bringing conviction of sin or causing God's truth to grow and spread, then what did he have in mind when he used the metaphor of salt? Well, for Christ's disciples to grasp what he was talking about and comparing them to salt, Jesus had to refer to the number one function of salt in the ancient world and the one that would have most naturally occurred to his audience and the one they would have just immediately thought of, and that is, folks, as a preservative for food. That's what salt was. Remember, in the ancient world, there were no refrigerators. There were no freezers. There were no ice-making machines. They had nothing to preserve food 
from decaying except salt, except salt. The only way to protect meat was to salt it down or soak it in a saline solution. That was the only way. And that, that is precisely that is precisely the use of salt that Christ's audience of fishermen and farmers would have thought of when they heard him use the analogy of salt. Because that was the function that they were most familiar with. They wouldn't have thought of fertilizing. They wouldn't have thought of cleaning out wounds. They wouldn't have even thought of thirst. See, Galilean fishermen caught their, their fish, and then they would have to transport some of it to Jerusalem, which was about a three days journey. So they'd have to preserve the fish by salting it down. Likewise, when a farmer killed an animal, the only means of preserving the meat would, uh, would be to salt it down. Otherwise, it would decay and it'd be unedible. So if Jesus used the metaphor of salt as a preservative from decay, question is then, then what did he mean when he called us the salt of the earth? Very simply put, he meant this. He meant that our presence in the world serves as a preserving force that keeps society from decaying as rapidly as it might if we were not here. That's, that's exactly what this means. Now, let me explain. The Bible teaches and is consistent in its teaching that the world we live in is a fallen world. It is a sinful and morally polluted world. It has a propensity, a tendency, a natural bent to decay like rotten, rotten fish or rotten meat. That's what scripture teaches from cover to cover. Though God created the earth perfect, when Adam sinned, decay set in. Everything's breaking down. Everything's going backwards. It's a downward spiral. Everything is, is rotten and it's, and it's rotting even more and more. You see the evidence of this. We're not talking about just individually, although that's true, but in society and culture. You see the evidence of this in the early chapters of Genesis. Organized rebellion to him. You see a society bent on, this, on, on rebelling against God and, and therefore the putrefying effects of sin. And so God in Genesis 6-5 looks at society, looks at the earth, and he destroys them with a, with a universal flood. It says in Genesis 6-5, then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God sent a flood and he destroyed the world and I take it that based on, on what Genesis tells us, that the only believers on the entire planet would be Noah and his small family. That's how bad it got. But after God destroyed the world, did man improve? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Man didn't improve at all. He continued his downward moral slide. And therefore, you read, the, you read about the organized rebellion of idolatry found in the Tower of Babel. That was idolatry. That was organized idolatry. You also read about the sexual perversion of an entire culture found in Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, a true, folks, a true biblical worldview reveals that our world is not improving. It's decaying. We're not optimistic about the world. We're not. You shouldn't be. You may be very optimistic about Christ's power and his sovereignty in accomplishing his will, but don't be optimistic about the world. Paul wasn't. It seems obvious to me as I read the news and see what's happening in schools, government, and the media that mankind is in a downward spiral. Things are going from bad to worse, even though there are occasional revivals that slow the decay. 
Our witness, for example, and our personal influence empowered by the Holy Spirit really are the salt that preserves mankind and helps slow the decay until the day Jesus comes to call us all home. You've been listening to Verse by Verse. I'm glad you could join us. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And today was the start of a new series of Bible studies from the Sermon on the Mount. If you'd like to visit Lakeside some Sunday, the church is at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Find out more at lakesidechapel.com or call the office at 727-441-1714. Verse by Verse is supported in large part by generous listeners like you, who we hope are first faithful to their own churches. We're thankful for the gifts that help to defray the expenses of production, equipment, airtime, and other costs involved with making Pastor Steve's messages available to our radio listeners. If the Lord is moving you to take part financially and verse by verse, we have a special giving page at our website to make it safe and convenient. Go to versebyverseradio.org and click the Giving tab near the top of the page. Or you can give over the phone by calling the church office at the number I just mentioned, 727-441-1714. Actually, I think my favorite page on the Verse by Verse website is the audio archive. There are hundreds of previous broadcasts available there at no cost for streaming or downloading. That way, if you miss hearing Pastor Steve during our regular broadcast time, you have a second chance to listen. Well, actually, as many chances as you want. And you can send the link or the file to a friend and introduce him or her to Verse by Verse. That's at versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Today we dealt with what it is to be salt. Join us next time as Pastor Steve shares why Jesus is concerned that we not lose our saltiness. We are here to give you strength between... Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.